John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 676.ez2410, certificate number 38738. The joy of cooking. Princess Zugat have developed what the French call je m'en foutisme, or I don't care what happens, the sky can fall and omelets can go over all over the stove. I'm going to learn. I shall overcome that sort of woman's liberation and... I mean, everything like that. If you're not going to be ready to fail, you're not going to learn how to cook. That's what that little lecture is all about. Do you, you, do you cook? I, this is awful. I cooked when I was single and uh, I wasn't that great a cook. Like what did you, what did you cook? I would cook Spaghetti. Right. Or I would cook fried rice. Right. Or I would cook uh, grilled chicken. Uh-huh. Okay, but you had some Ken Jennings I had a few foods. things that, I mean, honestly, I ate, also ate a lot of frozen pizza and a lot of uh, drive through Taco Bell. Did you ever entertain? Mac and cheese. Did you ever make a meal? But yeah, when I, if, if I, you know, if we were going to have, you know, people over if we're gonna have girls over to the apartment to watch a baseball game or other things that you would have girls over to do i had a few things that i could make and i feel pretty confident about following a recipe oh really like today when i have to if i have to cook something uh because you know the end of the story is like i married a pretty accomplished chef who likes to cook she's amazing that doesn't mean she like wants to make dinner every day for three people, two of which are my ungrateful teens. But you often have dinner parties. It's something that you like to do or buffet style parties. And there is such a proliferation of food. She puts out an insane amount of food. It's It's like she's some depression era grandma who has all those food scarcity issues from being a child. But really it's just that she likes to make stuff and worries that, you know, better too little than too. My grandma used to say, if at the end of the family dinner, you can tell people have been eating, you didn't have enough food. Whoa. Like, she wanted that many leftovers. She essentially wanted a Hilbert hotel of, <laughs> of leftovers. But Mindy will often put out 20 dishes or more of different things. Not, not regularly, but for no. like, but for like a big 
Christmas party or summer barbecue with a lot of people coming over. We had a Christmas party at your crazy. house where uh, we, you had a Christmas party at your house. I think of it as being we, because I enjoy the food so much, but there, you, it was German Christmas themed and it had all these wonderful German food. It just involved a lot of thinking in addition to cooking. Yes. You wanted to do an early December Christmas party before things got crazy. And that turned out to be St. Heinrich's day or, or whatever their, right. whatever their holiday is. So she did all these Central European, you know, there was sauerbraten and uh, German baked goods, and everybody got a little thing in their shoes because uh-huh. that's what they do. I, I don't, I don't understand Central Europe, but I, I got know that's, some. I got some coal and a dead mouse in my shoes. Yeah, I sh- I, that was my mistake. She came up to me and she said, "Which of these shoes are John's?" And I shouldn't have told her. I, in hindsight, why did I tell her? Uh, when you're following a recipe, do you prefer a recipe that's all business? Do you prefer a recipe that like gets you to the meal? I mean, do you do you want a recipe like you see on the side of a box, which is just a list of ingredients and the simplest uh, practical set of directions, or or do you like a do you like a a, a recipe that kind of um, works to help you create a meal? Uh, I get easily overwhelmed while cooking. Like I'm not very efficient. Like. A- I'm terrible at multitasking in general. And I think there's some evidence that shows that men are worse at multitasking. Like hmm. like mm-hmm. men are more easily emotionally frayed by the knowledge that they're going to have to keep doing one thing and do a second thing. Sure. We're not civilization builders. We're just out there trying to spear a buffalo. Yeah. Like, uh, like we're, single-mindedly. We're supposed to be we're supposed to be doing one job. One job. And literally evolution like m- made sure that somebody could keep the village together while the men were yeah you you see it with little girls and little boys on the playground like little girls are sitting in conference with one another dealing with all of the many thousands of things that are happening in the school and little boys are just banging their heads against a pole to see who can like break their nose first i don't want to say that all the (laughs) terrible like psychic load that our culture puts on women to try to keep things running while men are just goofing around and banging their heads on things I don't want to say that's all evolutionary and biological. Right. Because I'm sure as a culture, it really benefits men to offload all that stuff to women. Well, and, and it has for centuries. Yeah. Um, we, we can argue nature versus nurture on a different program. But I think there I think there might be some basis to it. And so I get very, I don't know, one symptom of it for me is that I get very easily stressed out while cooking. And I watch Mindy kind of juggle, you know, her 20, her 20 dish parties. And I'm like, how are you? It's, there's really a whole skill set beyond just, you know, because cooking is just following instructions on one level. Right. But as you ramp it up, as you scale up the complexity of that, it becomes a military operation. Sure, and things I'm have to come at out that. at the same time or at different times depending on what they need. You and have to have some sense in your head of whether you're ahead or behind on certain things, which tasks you actually need to be prioritizing, sp- prioritizing space. Uh, I, I don't know. I worked as a short order cook in the early 90s, and it was not a job that I sought. It was one that I um, – I was working in a rock club, and the cook at the time was uh, this gal who was about my age, but she was living a very, very punk rock life. She was in a band called Mock Turtle, except it wasn't spelled like the Mock Turtle net uh, shirt. It was M-A-C-H, Mock Turtle. And it's kind of culinary for because she's a chef. It was, and it was, uh, they, but they were extremely, like, hard punk. Mm-hmm. 
And she and the guitar player were in a relationship, and I think they were, uh, I mean, they were definitely on drugs, but the drugs began to be a more and more of a problem. Anyway, eventually she was no longer able to cook at the bar, and they cast around, you know, this was at a time when a rock club didn't like put an ad in the newspaper for a cook. They just wandered around the club like, you want to be the cook? You want to be the cook? <laughs> and they got to me. That can't be more effective. I was just standing around. You know, I had some job as a security guy, a bus boy, and they were like, you want to be the cook? And I was like, sure, I'll be the cook. And uh, she spent one day teaching me how to cook. And the first the first day I was the, the official cook, um, the sound man ordered the first meal from me, which was a grilled cheese sandwich. And I didn't understand the difference between the griddle and the grill. Did you think you made a grilled cheese sandwich on a, like a barbecue grill? No, but I put the, but there was, you know, there, half of the cooking surface was for hamburgers and half of it was for pancakes. I and, see. It, it, it was the same type of surface. Yeah. There was just, which part do we use for? And so I made a grilled cheese sandwich on the hamburger grill and it came out like gray very greasy. It absorbed all the hamburger grease. And I plated it and served it, not, you know, just like, well, here it is. I guess this is what happens when you make a grilled cheese sandwich. And the owner of the bar came storming in like, you have no idea how to cook. You said you were a cook. And I said, I never said I was a cook. <laughs> I just inherited this job. Anyway, I, I, I grew into the job. And, um, you know, that's a situation where sometimes you get 20 orders all at once. And there it's all about the military operation. Yeah. You're not learning skilled cooking no. skills. You're not julienning things. You're just learning how to do the part that freaks me out. Right. You're making eggs over here and chop salad over here. You've got fries. You've got burgers. You've got everything. You know, microwaves are cooking and things are on the burner. Um, and it was really, it was really hard. But eventually I grew to, I grew to love the work just because, boy, there's never a dull moment when it's a busy kitchen. Yeah. You can kind of thrive off of the... You know, you're you're a thrill seeker. Yeah, well, and like, I enjoyed you know putting stuff like ding, here's your chicken strips, and here's two fried eggs. I mean, it was instant gratification, fun. right? Yeah. Like you, uh, you you produce. It's it's not like songwriting. Like you could be sure, yeah, that you were going to produce something. Those were every good eggs, minutes. or not? And the thing was, I was a terrible cook. It wasn't it wasn't good food. But this was you know it was a. Bar it doesn't where, have to be. No, good everybody food. was super drunk on Jägermeister. They didn't care. They were just. It was just like gobble Yeah, it was eating. telling that the diner didn't care about the gray grilled cheese sandwich. He, he or she probably didn't even notice. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I'm- The I, owner I, saw. And it. I ended up, I, I got to the point where at the end of the night, I wouldn't make 15 different kinds of eggs. And eventually that turned into me just making a giant bucket of scrambled eggs and a bucket of uh, hash brown potatoes. And you could just, you could get a plate of it for 50 cents. It was, um, it was just a like- Forget it at one o'clock in the morning. Am I going to make you? I kind of want that at my house. Over easy eggs because you're going to pass out in the eggs. I want to just walk into the kitchen and find a bucket of hash browns that I can. It was actually pretty great. But uh, but cooking, you know, cooking is a um, is a is a component of your life, a major component of it. You don't eat out like like I typically would. I mean, I in uh, in the normal course of my life, I probably eat. Five out of seven meals. Um, Do you think in, in your life you've eaten more meals at restaurants or at home? Let's ignore breakfast. Well, I don't eat breakfast. There you go. Uh, when I was growing up, my mom tried to make uh, 
home-cooked meals for us. My dumb mom did too. And she was working, but she yeah. still thought she had to make three meals a day. My mom was working hard. You know, she had like, she was working 10 hours a day and yeah. then would come home and try to make us kind of the the traditional mid-century dinner of Salisbury steak, green beans, right. applesauce. It wasn't in the TV dinner tray, but it was still the same food. Basically the same food. Here's right? a can of beans or a thing of frozen peas. And over time, she, because she was working so hard, I think she started to develop a resentment about the fact that my sister and I did not really appreciate how difficult it was or how much work it was. You know, we turned up our nose at the jello salad and we, you know, bleh, this is no good. And one day, I remember it pretty distinctly, she got, oh, because my sister decided, it was just like, just like your kids. My sister decided she didn't eat meat. And I decided I didn't eat vegetables. And my mom threw her napkin down on the table and said, I'm not cooking anymore. You kids fend for yourself. And from that point on, I think I was probably a sophomore in high school, we just had to make our own dinner. And that wasn't when you started going to diners. No, it was, you know, it was a lot of like, I started to eat instant or, you know, uh, TV dinners and stuff like that. And my mom was like, I don't care. I'm not, I'm never making you another meal. And gradually, I think I'd, I started to like expand my repertoire a little, but we never ate out when I was a kid. It was a big treat just to go like in the summer we'd be in the States and we'd, we'd get to go get fast food, Yeah, you know, and that would be a huge treat just to go have a, have McNuggets at a play place. I don't think people today who are younger than us remember a time when fast food or could even conceive of a time when fast food was considered kind of a, luxury, something cool. Yeah. You know, you would go to Taco Bell and it would be like, wow, we're going to Taco Bell tonight. Like get your, get your good clothes on. Yeah. It's, uh, my kids have a real snob appeal problem where they, they don't, my son's been backing off it a little, but they dislike fast food kind of on classist grounds. Wow. Yeah. You know, like, and, and I guess there are, you know, anti-corporate reasons to support small businesses instead of going to Instead of going to KFC. Sure, but it's also poor people food by, by contemporary I, I, standards. I think that is some problem. And I'm glad that's kind of, my kids are backing off it a little. My son's really into like the new, like Popeyes and Chick-fil-A. Oh, those are, the, those Popeyes are good. Chick-fil-A is right. bad. They're bad politically. Yes, but they're right next to his high school. So, oh, so I, I keep telling him you're a bad ally. And he's like, but the spicy chicken sandwich is so good. It is pretty good. And so there, there are both things you yeah. have to consider. I'll tell you, Wendy's has a great chicken sandwich. Yeah, I think I think those are kind of underrated. But the fact that you know, I would you know, I kind of like. Uh, what do I like? I like McDonald's chicken nuggets. Yeah, right. I mean, you're a basic. You're pretty basic. Yeah, I don't mind that stuff. Even though I like good food, I don't. I don't mind gross chemical fast food. Do you remember racks? What the heck is Rax? Oh, oh, Rax with an X. Yeah, R-A-X. I just saw Rax for the first time last week. There was a gag on some TV show about restaurants that were gone, like no more. Like you go to the afterlife and you see defunct fast food places and they, right. they accidentally They're used like Rax. booths. Yeah, they accidentally, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they accidentally used Rax as a, as a, chain from the afterlife and somebody complained on the internet and said, no, there's still one racks. I think there is one racks. One I looked rack. this up not, not that long ago. They should have to spell it rack now. <laughs> racks was, you know, that, what, what, what kind of food? We've seen this over the years in fast food where fast food companies try to 
say like, we have fresh ingredients. We're actually not just bad, you know, pink slime and, and salt. Even McDonald's is doing it now. Well, McDonald's remember the, 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 um, McDLT, the I feel like we talk about the McDLT a lot on Omnibus. <laughs> I do but, remember, but Rax was supposed to be a cut above. You know, they had were they burgers? Uh, they were burgers and and sandwiches, but they had a salad bar, a nice salad bar mm. at a time when salad bars were a new innovation. Like you'd have to go to a nice place like Sizzler, yeah, if that's you wanted right. the salad bar. That's right, a nice. Well, you know, my uh, my daughter and her mother love Sizzler, and I can't believe it. I mean. Talk about, I, I mean, I have developed a class problem with Sizzler. The funny thing is Americans are not getting more affluent, you know, but we have decided to prioritize food. We've decided right. we are not going to go to Sizzler. I mean, if I'm going to, you know, if I need cheap eats, I'm going to go to a pho place or like there's, there's good options. Right. Um, and I'll pay a little more if it means not going to Sizzler. But for us, those were the fancy places. Well, what we came along at a time, the, uh, a lot of these fast food restaurants uh, were kind of products of that McDonald's era of the Burger Shack that made food, you know, like simple food, hamburgers, hot dogs, and milkshakes, kind of available instantaneously. You didn't have to do any work. It was an efficiency thing. like, And America loved that at the right. time, right? Look how fast we can turn out these standardized products. But we were the first generation to see any kind of ethnic food beyond pizza and in some cases not even tacos yeah um we generation x uh watched i mean taco bell was a real innovation like what is this crazy taco you know that you wouldn't if you weren't living in a place that had a large mexican-american population you could you could have missed mexican food entirely but teriyaki restaurants were were really an 80s invention. There were 10 foods, basically, when we were kids. Yeah. You just had to eat the same 10 foods. And so... Even at the grocery store. Even at the grocery store. You would, there would be 10 different vegetables. I mean, my mom said that in the 60s, she and my father ate some form of steak or pork chop or roast chicken every meal. There this, was no other food. This is the source of the cliche about how Chinese restaurants mean you have to, you're hungry again in an hour. It was because it was the first time people would eat a plate of food and there wasn't a big slab of what you're saying, steak right. or pork. Right. Uh, it was the first time you would eat a, a plate of vegetables. That had not occurred to Americans before. Right. And how could that possibly fill you up? How could it, right. it, how could it even be nutritious? How is that a meal? It's just pea pods. Well, the evolution of food, uh, food preparation and food science, really— um, is kind of a 19th century evolution. Uh, there were not really cookbooks. There were, there were not really standardized recipes. Food preparation was kind of uh, passed down word of mouth. It was a thing that you learned, um, you know, at your mother's, uh, you know, apron string. Mm -hmm. And as the... You know, as the 19th century progressed and as kind of uh, the, in the Victorian era, you know, a lot of families living in – living under one roof and the requirements of kind of food preparation got more uh, – got more complicated. It wasn't just that you were making food for your nuclear family or, you know, some kind of like 
food for the troops you were billeting in your barn, um, which, you know, typically was roast raccoon. That's what I, to this day, that's what I feed the troops. But also in the mid 19th century, the idea of domestic science uh, started to evolve. It was an era where science was, was all the rage and uh, scientific principles uh, started to be applied or attempted to be applied across a wide scope of kind of, well, of, of life. Including in the home. Including in the home. And the idea, uh, the, 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 the understanding that food itself was uh, made of chemicals and that combinations of vitamins were essential to nutrition. All of these were ideas that were, you know, that were in the process of evolving right prior to the 19th century. There, there wouldn't have been a, a sense that uh, of a, of a well-rounded meal as having a basis in science rather than in just, uh, you know, a common understanding. Do we think that this is something that was maybe empowering? And women are doing the bulk of this work then. Do we think this is empowering for them to actually take their work seriously? Or is this just another case for men to explain to them that they're doing it wrong? No, domestic science as a field was one of the first sort of places where female empowerment uh, began to take root. It was something that was taught in female colleges, you know, women's only colleges, but it was also domestic science was not just limited to food. It encompassed all the aspects of running a home, child rearing, child rearing, uh, economics, you know, the, yeah, the, 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 the purse strings of the house. Sure. Balancing the, not just the food budget, but balancing the, the whole budget of the home. You know, this is a knowledge gap. This is a bit of a sidebar. I apologize, but this right, is a knowledge gap that exists Today, still, um, I'm on a I'm on a game show right now called Masterminds on the Game Show Network. Weekdays at 4 p.m. Humble brag. <laughs> What's humble about it? Oh, because it's on Game Show Network instead of on broadcast. <laughs> it's basic cable. Sorry, it's uh, you know the Game Show Network audience is is kind of laser. They've really leaned into who they know is watching these shows, which is often like older households, older women specifically in uh, the kind of the Midwest and South, in, right. in what the coast would think of as flyover America. Right. And they're going to lean into soap this. Soap opera audience. It's the people who are still watching soaps. It's older, it's female. Um, politically, it's quite red, actually, mm -hmm. like a not in the communist sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was noticing the canon of trivia on this show was really designed for them. There's hardly any pop culture. So it's not an issue whether you've seen a Marvel movie or know who Cardi B is. Or even like, like there seemed to be a hard cutoff for like 1950. Like, is, is it how to make a gravy? There were a ton of lifestyle questions. And by that, they do mean, you know, what's in a fricassee and what's a ramekin and what are these different embroidery stitches? Huh. And a lot of lifestyle stuff, just like, you know, stuff related to your checking account or your credit rating or your mortgage payment. It's domestic science. And it's clearly designed so that women don't watch this show and think... Cardi B. Yeah, or even like the Civil War. I mean, the idea that, that knowledge would be gendered seems like something we should have moved beyond. But clearly they have demographic data showing them that 
people want to get asked about the knowledge in their lives. And that's, that's, there's still a gender gap in, in 2020. Did you take a home economics class? I did. I got a C plus in my home economics class. Wow. My, my worst ever grade. I loved the cooking part, but I never took to the sewing machines. Busted. But my, my, you know, my popovers were good. Like all the kitchen stuff I liked. Is that right? You, you, you did good popovers? Yeah, we made, it was pretty easy stuff. I remember putting, not from a mix, I remember some easy baked goods. Uh, what else did we make? I mean, in theory, they should be teaching you cooking principles, but this is something you see cookbooks doing today. Like, it's a, some cookbooks will privilege being a set of recipes. Others will privilege, like, here's the holistic view of what food is. Right. And that is, um, and that's a thing that has evolved, right? Home economics was, uh, was a way of couching or, or changing the, the name of domestic science into one that's, that tried to er- eradicate the stigma of a gender bias, right? By the time we were in high school, boys were expected to take home ec. But I feel like it's just like any other uh, name for a a community or an identity where the old one gets like home. Once it gets associated with the thing, it's sullied again. Right. Home economics became gender. That became girl. Just like, you know, uh, we mentally retarded used to be the scientific way delayed right. to say, you know, whatever the previous word was like, we used to say imbecile, right. you know, right. or moron. Those were scientific Pinhead. terms. But once the new term gets associated with the stigma, then right. all bets and are off and you have to make a new thing. Often home ec now is referred to as family and consumer science. Mm. So it's done, it's kind of come full circle. Uh, and, you know, how, I, think, I think now there's less of a stigma about it. But it's, you know, it's still, and, and it fell out of fashion for a while cooking, as a series of classes. Cooking shows have done more than any educational initiative, I think, to get rid of the idea that cooking is women's work. I mean, it's also created some weird thing where all the world's great chefs are men. Yeah. So it's had, a, it's had that side effect. But my kids are super interested in cooking and it's not on gender lines. Yeah, right. And that is a, that's an evolu- that's a modern evolution. And it, and it stems from this process I'm about to describe. In the mid-19th century, there was a, a cooking school called the Boston Cooking School. And it was, you know, it was the beginning of the idea that cooking was something that, um, that women that had, that were getting a higher education this was, you know, one of the topics along with some of these other domestic sciences that there was more to it than just learning recipes. And in the course of, you know, expanding their curriculum, one of their teachers, a woman by the name of Mary Lincoln, wrote a book called Mrs. Lincoln's Boston Cookbook, which was initially she intended it to be a textbook in the school uh, because it was, you know, it was dealing with more than just, you know, add a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It was a, um, it was more uh, the, the the first kind of textbook about cooking. And was it, do you think it had a nutritional angle or was it more like, here's how to be a hostess and uh, it was, how to entertain? It or? was much, it was the, it was much more sort of talking about the science of nutrition. It was the first kind of mm-hmm. a little bit more of a, um, a little bit more of a kind of hard, uh, hard science version of what cooking was and could be. I mean, it was recipes were complicated, but it was it was a kind of a 
dissection of what and that's all bio, and that's a science that didn't even exist in labs before that time. I mean, you need, you need pretty good biochemistry to understand, you know, why we need potassium from bananas and which amino acids are in which legumes. You right. Know? I mean, how long how long before that did did the realization that limes cured scurvy? Right. You know, it was it was prior to this. I mean, and that was quite a bit earlier. But but this this gradual evolution that food was more than. Uh, than just, you know, a pile of things cooked in butter. And it's still evolving, as you know, if you've ever seen, you know, any hype about around a new superfood. Uh, you know, this the idea of what good nutrition is is not a closed book. Right. And and it was evolving alongside the um, the kind of rise of domestic science as uh, as more than just a kind of new a new field of female empowerment, it was becoming like a college level of, uh, like an undertaking of study. So women could have credentials in it. Women could have credentials and it could be, it it was a way that you could, uh, you could learn a professional trade. You could, this is, this, this became a college degree and, and it was a, a way to, uh, have employment outside of the home. You could go and and utilize these skills in the marketplace. Um, and so, as the you know as the twentieth century dawned, um, a student of the Boston Cooking School, a woman by the name of Fanny Farmer, wrote her uh, and she she had been a domestic science student. She wrote her what became an iconic cookbook called the. Uh, the Boston Cooking School book. And Fanny Farmer was the first person to use measuring cups. The first person what? to in- introduce the idea that you didn't just use a smidgen or a, uh, you know, a splotch or a little, you know, half a, half a dash, but that it was a, um, that, that it was, and it wasn't just like a, take a teaspoon and, and throw some, throw a teaspoon worth. She was the first person to uh, introduce the idea of a level teaspoon, a level <laughs> tablespoon. Like these were measurable and con- constant ingredients, so that you could really make a meal as a science. That's probably borrowed from industry, right? Like if you were making Portland cement, I assume you had to care more about proportions, and that kind of care finally worked its way into the kitchen. And and it was an evolution of the idea that this was scientific. And it does matter. You can you can have two chocolate chip cookies like, you know, as my kids have tried to cook, I've had many a baked good where the measurements were a little bit off, and you can absolutely tell. As my mom has always said, you think that in order to make a softer, more delicious pastry that you would add more butter, but in fact, slightly less butter mm. is how you make a chewier cookie. Interesting. Yeah. That's a thing I think that a lot of us who are reading recipes and going, well, I could use a few more chocolate chips and a little bit more butter. We're actually making a crispier cookie. Uh, Fanny Farmer, her, her cookbook was so popular that it just became kind of known as the Fanny Farmer cookbook. But she really thought of herself more as a food scientist and a nutritionist and worked kind of tirelessly. She ended up being a lecturer at Harvard hmm. in the science of nutrition and, you know, was kind of an early 
promoter of nutritional ideas. And, you know, this was an era of Kellogg and these other, you know, people kind of with, in some ways, crackpot theories. Yeah, quasi-religious cults. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where food played a major role. And she was she was promoting the idea that that um, that nutrition was measurable and that it had uh, that it had demonstrable and provable health benefits. She continued to work. She 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 wrote a book called um, the uh, the food. Uh, she wrote a book called Food and Cookery for the Sick and Convalescent, and she expected, I think, that her legacy was going to be as a uh, as a food scientist and as a as a a health, uh, what, what would you say? As a, almost as a doctor, yeah, some medical authority. And she was the victim of uh, a couple of catastrophic strokes in her young life, and so she always she walked with a limp. She was, uh, you know, kind of what you would have called at the time a, a cripple. You know, she was a, a mobility disabled. impaired, disabled, and so her. You know her fascination with nutrition as a as a means of of promoting health was not just academic, mm. and she saw that a lot of the food that you feed the sick and convalescent is unattractive, and um, and nutrition is of the utmost importance so, in healing. So hospital food was exactly what it is today, I guess. Well, and she tried to she tried to change that. You know, she tried to bring delicious food to hospitals. And I was looking up the dates here. The first edition of her cookbook comes out in 1896. Right. And it looks to me like most vitamins were not discovered until the 20th century. Yeah. So she's working ahead of most of the actual lab work that, that demonstrates the mechanisms here. And that was, a, you know, kind of a lot of the coursework and a lot of her, a lot of her innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it ended up that her cookbook was popular, so popular that 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 became her, that was her bestseller. Her legacy is publishing. Her legacy is publishing. Huh. Um, but in the, in the mid, well, let's see, you know, by the 1920s, as you say, a lot of vitamins uh, and nutrition had, had evolved as a science. But there was a kind of, domestic science was starting to evolve because the Victorian household was starting to dissolve uh, by the 1920s, there were fewer of these multifamily homes. There was um, there was more in, women were experiencing more independence in the world. Domestic science had and women's colleges had enabled a kind of new generation of women to take on what we now think of as the cliched and constricting role of the housewife, but what at the time was considered a fairly progressive and empowering job. Mm, that's interesting. The the wife as a hostess, as a um, social companion to her husband, as someone that would have social prominence of her own and be, you know, widely regarded as a scintillating conversationalist and entertain, you know, like uh, uh, dynamic entertainer. I guess it's it's the Greta Gerwig little women thing about how few options there are. If if your only other option is to just be some silent drudge, well, but if you think about do, if you think about the relationship of a couple, if social prominence is the end goal, yeah. right? If you are if you are a country club family, you know the husband's 
the husband's work in the city as a lawyer or a banker really is just a money-earning role, and his social prominence is something that he can bring back to the home. Yeah. In the community, it's right. all it's all going to be dependent on the wife. It's her work. And I think it, you see in your own Christmas parties, right? It is Mindy is the star. You're just the what? you're just a boob standing in the I doorway tr- putting dead mice in people's shoes. Come in, get a drink. Hey everybody. It's that's that's what you always see the dad the husband doing. Come see my Lego Saturn five. That is not what I it's was like, saying. <laughs> And I guess the rise of the middle class at the same time means an increasing audience for that kind of a lifestyle. But before right. it would be a very narrow elite who's not the working class who actually cares about status in the community and so forth. Well, now, now your average person has a household. And and prior to that you would have had a you would have had a domestic staff in a lot oh, of cases, right? True. Even in the middle class because domestic help was so inexpensive. You could even be a, I mean, you could be just a middle class family and have a cook, and a, that. a cook and a, and a house cleaner. So that's why the, the the upper middle class wife was doing embroidery and stuff because right. she had a staff to do all the stuff from which her reputation would come in the 20th century. And so a lot of this domestic or the domestic science, it took the form of, uh, you know, of women who were now dictating to their staff kind of how the, she wanted her household run. Huh. It wasn't just that she was in the kitchen making pies. She was balancing the checkbook. She's and got an executive role. That's right. She has a... Running the home. Yeah, she's got a, 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 an org chart. But by the, you know, by the beginnings of the middle part of the 20th century, um, that, uh, some of that domestic staff had started to be a thing of the past. And so in order to be a, um, a successful homemaker, you had to start... Uh, you know, also being a good cook, you know, also being a good, um, I mean, you still would presumably have domestic help, even if, it, even if they only came in for dinner parties. So enter into this story, uh, our heroine, a woman by the name of Irma Rombauer, who, uh, who was kind of a classic upper middle class Midwestern girl. Who, uh, who married well? Uh, her family married her to a lawyer by the name of Edgar Rombauer. So now they're one of the finest families in St. Louis. Uh, I was going to say Moline, St. Louis, <laughs> even better, St. Louis, Missouri. And she was a vivacious, uh, petite woman who was, you know, widely regarded as a, a shining light on her, on her social, you know, within her social community, not widely regarded as a good cook hmm. by any of the people in her town. But she, you know, to be invited to a Rombauer party was to be, um, to be given this kind of sparkling time. And she was a, she was educated and, 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 a and a great conversationalist and, and curated these sort of wonderful parties in St. Louis society. Um, but her husband, Edgar, who was a, a prominent lawyer also suffered from kind of catastrophic depression. And uh, after the stock market crash of 1929, he fell into a deep hole and uh, committed suicide. Oh. Leaving Irma and her two children, uh, Marion and Edgar Roderick Rombauer. That's not why I chose this. No relation. Not why I chose this topic. Perhaps, perhaps they are uh, r- related. Edric, Edgar Roderick Rombauer is a pretty good name. Pretty good name. Um, she was left 
without a means of economic support and in this kind of the tragic position of a homemaker who has lost her yeah, this is, money this, earner. This is some magnificent Amberson. That's right. And so, uh, but she was sort of a, you know, a vivacious spirit and a go-getter and announced to her family and to everyone that she was going to write a cookbook, which was shocking to her community because, as I say, she was not thought of as a very good cook. But she came up, <laughs> she came up with this scheme and and probably like, you know, like a lot of women of the era went around collecting recipes from her friends and from her relatives. My mom did this. She had, uh, her grandmother had passed down all these sort of crinkled old recipes. It's why index cards were invented. Yeah. Everybody had a little shoebox full of, because you'd, you'd eat whatever somebody brought to the church picnic and then, oh, you simply must give me the recipe. Yeah. Well, how, do, how is it made? And, you know, there were these private recipes. Somebody sent us in our omnibus inbox, a recipe for their family Cincinnati chili. And it was some kind of secret. Secret. You know, we weren't allowed to to pass it around. And it was kind of, the recipe was a little cryptic, I I'm, thought. I think, uh, I don't think we're even allowed to make it. I'm, I'm not going to attempt it. No, I think, well, after I'm out of that Skyline chili they sent us, I might actually have to the, do it. It was the same person who sent us canned chili. He's, re- <laughs> he's really taking care of us. He's like, look out. You, if you buy a man chili, he'll eat for a day. But if you teach, teach him how him. to make chili. So in 1931, she comes out with this manuscript, which she called a compilation of reliable recipes with a casual culinary chat. What a great title. Yeah. That just, that'll sell itself. The, or, and it was called Joy of Cooking. Oh, that, it was not. A, it was not. The title was not the culinary. Well, chef. joy, joy of cooking colon, colon a I compilation see. of reliable recipes with a casual culinary chat. The title is interesting. Joy of cooking. It implies that uh, it's. This is not just some way for you to run a more efficient household. Right. This is. This is a fun pastime. And what made the book innovative was a couple of things. Rather than do what every cookbook prior had done, which was list the ingredients in their amounts in a table mm-hmm. at the start of the recipe, and then walk you through kind of like a HelloFresh recipe, um, walk you, or, or the recipe you would find on a, on a package of spaghetti, where they, you know, heat the oven to 350 degrees, etc. Um, Irma Rombauer's innovation was that she wrote sort of chatty story-based recipes where she didn't she didn't reveal the next ingredient until it arrived in the story very dramatic and a new character appears baking soda <laughs> and she had all these kind of and it, it, it was folksy to a degree but it was also kind of um you know, she was a she was a very intelligent and sparkling conversationalist. So it was a fun read. You could sit down to try to make a casserole and be entertained. I have two notes at this point. Okay. One is that this creates our modern era of online recipes where you have to I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you're trying to make something online, you have to scroll through pages of personal blog narrative before yeah. you get to the actual recipe. So that's Irma's gift to us. This was this was like proto blogging. I mean, she didn't uh, she didn't go on for she didn't explain paragraphs. that uh, after we got back from the bazaar, right. I changed my apron. 
After my divorce, I was so after, sad. After my husband's <laughs> after depression my husband's and suicide, suicide. <laughs> the thing to perk me up was these cream puffs. The second response I have to this is this is Mindy's big beef with the joy of cooking. Oh, this is her. her to this day, they still keep beef. this format of not lift, listing the ingredients before the, the steps of the recipe. I, I have the I have joy of cooking right here, which I brought. First time I've ever had the topic of the show in front of me. Yeah, look at that. And so they still they still do this. Like it'll for tuna noodle casserole. I mean, that's not a good example. Let's get something a little fancier here. For Parmesan-crusted sautéed fish fillets, mm. it'll uh, tell you, instead of coating the fish with flour, dip first in a mixture of, and then, only then does it tell you you need eggs and milk. How far down is that? Then coat in a mixture. Well, sometimes it's paragraphs into it. Right. And, you know, sometimes the ingredients will be at the very end. If this, this has a garnish of parsley and lemon wedges. Well, so the assumption and, is that you're not going to open the cookbook and stand there like with your oven already preheated and your and a spatula in one hand and a knife in the other. All right, take me away, Irma. That you would read the that you would right. read it all the way through as a as an essay, as a as a kind of um maybe a, even like a little bit of a philosophy text about not just how to make the food, but how to present it, how you would use it. Mindy finds it annoying because she thinks that the natural cook's impulse is to assemble the ingredients first, right? And, and then, and if you read the if you read the recipe all the way through, you could you could be then writing down the the ingredients. And they do it's formatted today, so they do bold the ingredients and they're indented, so it is easy to pick out what you need. Now, now what edition of Joy of Cooking is that? This is the. I think it's the, I mean, this has been revised a ton of times. It has. It's not labeled like a dictionary. Uh, what's its publication date? This is the latest full-on revamp, I think. 97? Okay. Is, is there a newer one? Uh, there is a newer one, but 97 is kind of a is kind of a key edition, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, she published this book independently. Uh, not quite Vanity Press, but she went to a, a local uh, St. Louis company called A.C. Clayton, which was basically a printer that made labels <laughs> for cans. They made they made the Listerine label. <laughs> and she said, will you publish my book? Even if it's a hit, you know it's going to sell fewer copies than the Listerine label. Uh, they, they printed 3,000 of them. And it was, you know, it was a Vanity Press undertaking at first. She was trying to give herself something to do after the death of her husband. And she sold them herself and took them around to uh, gift shops and um, places that, you know, you might, you might sell a cookbook in St. Louis. And it was kind of, uh, you know, locally a hit. Word of mouth. Yeah, people loved it. And it was reviewed in the local paper as like, oh, this is charming. And it became kind of St. Louis famous. Um, and so as the, as the 30s wore on, she started seeking out a real publisher for her book because she'd, you know, she'd sold a couple of thousand of them and she felt like, oh, this might be a vi viable or going concern. Um, and she was rejected, of course, like all great writers, rejected. Well, probably like a lot of women entrepreneurs at the time. A dozen, a dozen times. Yeah. And eventually, um, eventually she found in the, uh, the public, the publisher, Bob's Merrill, who was, you know, a, a, a his name is Bob's, B Mr. Bob's, 
B-O-B-B-S. Oh, I thought it was a guy named Bob's Merrill. How no. Many, how many Bobs are there? Bob's hyphen Merrill. Gotcha. Um, it was uh, a publisher that went back to the mid-19th century. They'd published quite a few different novelists uh, over the over the hundred years, but had kind of become a scholastic publisher and um, like a trade publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ha- they rejected her a couple of times before they finally acquiesced to publishing this book. She was uh, not a super good domestic scientist in th- in that she mistook the fact that her husband had been a lawyer for the fact that maybe she knew a little bit something about contract negotiation. Oh, does she get negotiated a pretty bad contract with uh with Bob's Merrill which ended up being um being the source of an awful lot of bitterness over the over the decades. But they promoted her book and it started to sell. And uh, they they published her book first in 1936, and it kind of sold pretty darn well. Even you know, I think if you, I don't know about your book, but if you sold fifty thousand copies of a of your most recent book, how would you feel? Yeah, I yeah. think that's a that's that's about what my books sell, and they are largely successful books. Yeah, and that would uh, that made it kind of a hit in the in the 1930s and she became she was reviewed in the New York Times this book The Joy of Cooking and they took off the compilation of relatable uh, recipes with a casual culinary chat off of it. They were correct that people did not want culinary chat. W- was it what it is today which is essentially a one-stop the appeal of Joy of Cooking today is it's kind of a one-stop shopping source for all styles and skills of, of cooking. It was. She, she basic can, recipes in every vein. She continued to add new recipes to it, um, but it was intended to be uh, a one-stop shop for this this new, you know, this uh, generation of women that were practicing domestic science but didn't have all day to sit and, uh, you know, and make a 17-layer cake or whatever. And it really came into play during World War II mm. when there was there was rationing, there was a, a desire to, you know, be able to make food kind of on the fly because women were, were working a lot of the time in defense industries. There were uh, there were often men that were not at war whose wives were working who were responsible for Cooking and Sud- making a home. You've got tens of millions of men who have never picked up a saucepan. And so she made, um, she, well, so in the very late 30s, she came out with another cookbook called Streamlined Cooking, which was really like the 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 first cookbook to say, take a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup and put it in a pan. Yeah. Cook some chicken breast. And it wasn't. A success, streamlined cooking. She was ahead of her time, though. That's, she was. That's mid-century cooking right there. But what she did was she took some of those recipes and she put them into her newest edition. And this is, you know, this is all kind of being uh, being pushed by Bob's Merrill. Uh, and in 1943, came out with this wartime edition, which was a super hit. It sold 600,000 copies. And it's called it's called Joy of Cooking. It's called Joy of Cooking. Um, and it it and it had. Recipes specifically designed to um, to work with rationed materials. It was the the kind of chattiness was introducing a whole new generation to the idea that you could 
throw you know throw open a cookbook and come up with a uh, a meal that would satisfy your family and entertain your neighbors. Um, at this point, her daughter Marion started to be a collaborator with her. She wanted, although her relationship with her publisher was bad, she negotiated that her daughter would be the exclusive sort of inheritor of the responsibility to the cookbook. It's a family business. It, and she, that's what she turned into. I feel it like you, have a, you must have a sense that this is your life's work when you choose a child to carry it on. Right. I mean, she knows her influence now. She does, and she was proud of it. And uh, and Marion, uh, Marion, who whose um, married name was Marion Becker, she was had a had a real interest in nutrition and nutrition in the mid century style, which was now, you know, had a much better understanding that there were there were kinds of foods you could eat that would promote heart health, for mm. instance, and that uh, it was also a, a added sort of guides to exercise and to kind of healthy living. Um, and this was a, this was an addition that came out in 1951 that was, uh, uh, like popular at, um, at, at a new level, right. And started to sell, uh, started to become a ubiquitous book, in American households. Cookbooks have to be updated pretty often because food, think how fast food fashions change. Right. Um, maybe not so much a hundred years ago, but certainly today. Well, and also it's not just the, the sense that you would now be cooking with saffron where you wouldn't have in your grandmother's time, but also your grandmother had a lot of more, a lot more time. And also, you know, a, a kitchen that was a lot more primitive than yeah, 1951. Uh, addition started to use blenders mm. and uh, toasters, you know, things that hadn't... I didn't even think about that because I guess we've kind of asymptotically approached the limit of, of kitchen gadgets, really. Right. I mean, with the exception of like your instant pot cookbook or your sous vide cookbook, like really a chocolate chip cookie recipe today uses all the same tools as 50 years ago. But that was not true. Not true in 1950. In 1950, yeah. All these labor-saving devices. were new. uh, This was a big part of of cooking now, and it hadn't been prior. And like you say, I mean, the crock pot, when it came out, it had a whole new set, a whole new cookbook devoted just to making recipes. And the microwave. I think you kind of, a lot of that stuff does not seep into the culture, the the stuff that comes with the appliance. Right. Um, But sometimes they do. Irma lived until 62, but she suffered a series of strokes and was increasingly incapacitated. And uh, and Marion took over the production of the cookbook entirely. And in 1975, published an edition. Uh, at this point, it had f- 4,300 recipes in it. And the 1975 edition became the definitive edition. By the mid-70s, um, this was how people... Eight, and it sold. And this is the cookbook in every home. This is now the default American cookbook. If you want to find a copy of the 1975 edition of Joy of Cooking, you can find it. I have one. Any used bookstore will have ten of them. Right? And my grandmother's uh, like like foxed old recipes are tucked in the pages of my yeah. mom's copy of Joy of Cooking from 1975. Um, it sold six million copies. Wow! And continued to sell. Uh, at a in in 1985, Bob's Merrill was purchased by Mac, Macmillan, the publisher, which then started to 
started to try and modernize it for a for a contemporary audience. The cookbook or the the cookbook. Okay. And the ninety seven edition, nineteen ninety seven, the one that you have there. Uh, that uh, at this point, Macmillan had been purchased by Scribner, and this cookbook was supervised by Ethan Becker, the son of Marion. So it's still a family business today. Still a family business. I guess if you look at the cover of this, it says the whole multi generational thing, including dead authors: Irma S. Rombauer, Marion Rombauer Becker, and Ethan Becker. Right. But the ninety-seven Joy of Cooking is different. It was significantly modified by the introduction of food experts. It was no longer just the work of the, of the uh, Rombauer-Becker family. They now were, Scribner insisted that, you know, we need to modernize this and get it into the, into the, the Do you think the recipes the were, do you think the recipes were uneven before? Um, well, no, but you, you will find in this 97 edition that there are, um, you do see a lot more, a lot less chattiness, and a lot more get to the point. Um, there, there, there are a lot of recipes that kind of were holdovers, a lot of the writing, but it, it had been streamlined, and a lot of the new recipes were in a much more modern form. Now, there's a sentence or two. I mean, they still keep the you don't see an ingredient until it's time to add it, right? But now there's just a sentence or two. Of, you know, empanadas will tell you these flaky meat pies are a much loved snack all through Latin America. They can be filled with anything from fish to fruit, but meat is most common. And I mean, that's that's all you get to know. And now let's dive in. Now let's dive in. But this is horrifying. The sloppy Joe, known as loose meat in certain parts of the country. What? Who that, calls it loose meat? I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna start calling it loose meat. Good lord, that's awful. What's for dinner tonight? It's loose meat. Uh, the 97 edition sold well, but this was right at the time when I mean, strangely, as soon as you introduce new Coke. You're going to get all the people that want vintage Coke. And in some cases, vintage Coke will drive new Coke right out of the market. Um, What was the objection here? Well, just that it had become like other cookbooks by virtue of taking away uh, the chattiness and replacing it with efficiency. Yeah, I've... I'm not a cookbook expert, but this seems like a pretty typical one-volume cookbook to me. So different from the 19... uh, 50 edition that um, that in 1998, just a year later, a facsimile edition of the early edition was published, you know, kind of alongside. Just like, just like even, New Coke. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and then in 2006, a 75th anniversary edition, which, you know, re kept a lot of the modern like instructions, but reintroduced the chattiness. And then the most recent edition was published in 2019. It's still an, uh, an Ethan Becker joint? Now published, or now uh, sh- like shepherded by John Becker, the great-grandson. So there's four generations on the cover. Yeah. This is fantastic. They're going to run out of room. Uh, so it was, um, you know, it, was, it, it remains the best-selling cookbook of all time. It was hugely influential on Julia Child, mm. who uh, who was kind of... Um, felt empowered by Joy of Cooking. And Julia Child, you know, then went to France and had these kind of transformative experiences that led her to Cordon Bleu and to the publish, publication of her own book, the, the, uh, the Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which created a whole new generation of people that had a 
sort of different approach to cooking. But we do see it. Um, we do see her, and I'm not talking about Julia Child. We're, Irma's. We're, we're, we do see Irma's influence in, as you said at the top of this episode, all of the food shows that have made eating and cooking into a very sort of chatty social cultural exchange. If you think about Anthony Bourdain. And a pastime. Right. Like something they're doing for fun, not because you got to get dinner on the table at seven. The cooking is the yeah. is the thing. It's not, you're not making the meal, you are doing the cooking. And Anthony Bourdain took it to that next level of using cooking and food as a way of exploring the world. Adventure. Right. And uh, even ideology to some degree. I mean- when I asked my wife about the joy of cooking, she pointed out that to a degree, all cookbooks are kind of obsolete now. I asked her what her favorite cookbook is. And she said, she did not say joy of cooking. She said, for new cooks, better homes and gardens. Like all the recipes are rock solid and they're designed to be really simple. If anybody else just wants a one volume thing, America's Test Kitchen, because it's got photos. Right. And one thing that people want out of cookbooks now is um, like people read them for pleasure. Like my wife will have a cookbook on the bedstand. Not because she's studying up on how to blanch asparagus, but just because there's beautiful pictures of food. And that's what the, I think, Joy of Cooking was used as a, at, to sit down and, and read Joy of Cooking for a while. Even though it predates glossy photos. Yeah, well, I think and, you're right. And the thing is, there was a lot of pressure uh, on the family to include photos. The original, uh, the original editions were illustrated by Marion, who, uh-huh. who had studied as a graphic artist. And so she did these line drawings of the food. There are still line drawings. And as time went on, there was a lot of pressure to modernize the cookbook by adding photos. And the family resisted it and has continued to have illustrations. It's uh, kind of classy. Like illustrations. If, if you ever wanted to see a Wall Street Journal-style dot picture of a Vidalia onion or a trout or a colander, right. this is the book for you. And it, it does kind of give it a nice timeless look. Well, and in 1997, they had taken a lot of the illustrations out that would have, have now been put back into it as it's... A lot of it's got to be for room. I mean, even without illustrations, this thing's 1,130 pages. It's a, it's a massive, massive book. Uh, so just coping with what to leave in or out every edition must be tough. But there's also the problem of... Uh, I mean, one of the things that makes cookbook obsolete now is the internet. Like if right. you want... Uh, if you want to browse different things to do with uh, veal medallions or salmon or celery root, it's a Google search away. Right. You're no longer uh, looking at Irma's two options anymore. And, you know, for, so really, like my wife now thinks of cookbooks almost 100% as just pleasure reading. They're not utilitarian at all. And in the 15 years prior to this, there was that explosion of cooking magazines, Gourmet and Savour and Cooks Illustrated, which were, uh, which were publications, I think you, you don't see them as much anymore. But, but f- That's just because of the death of magazines. Right. Though, like the- when I was in my 20s and 30s, if you were a cultured person, you subscribed to at least one of these cooking mm-hmm. magazines. Um, I have a good friend that was actually the editor-in-chief of Savour oh, for yeah. a while. I he remember. and I used to go, um, Adam Sachs, he and I used to, in New York, go out and he would take me to these restaurants and he would be feted like a celebrity and they would bring us 50 plates of little, you know, little, the cook would go crazy in his kitchen making us little things. It was a, uh, a pretty good life. And I guess, you know, now I'm in retirement, so I don't get to see it as much. Does this mean cookbooks are over? I mean, will the joy of cooking continue? Will futurelings, uh, have access to, I mean, maybe not the book part. 
recipes aren't dead, just in bound volumes. So The Joy of Cooking has sold close to 20 million copies in its life. And there's now a movement of kind of hipster chefs that are revisiting these old cookbooks and making dinner parties out of some of, you know, what would have been considered déclassé recipes. The Fanny Farmer book uh, just recently there was um there was a show made uh celebrating like the, you know, to put on a big dinner party just using Fanny Farmer recipes. I know a few years ago, maybe the most uh one of the, the most uh prestigious kind of forward-thinking molecular gastronomy type restaurants in London was called Dinner. And it was just a Heston Blumenthal uh, joint where he would, the whole gimmick was that he would rehabilitate old recipes. And by old, some of them would be back to the tutors, you right, know, it would right. be like, this meat pie was found in a 1397 cookbook that blah, blah, blah might have used. Of course, we've jazzed it up with uh, jicama and uh, emu, you know, or, or whatever. I, I ate in a restaurant in Estonia last year, which was modeled on 13th century like wild game food and everything on the menu was, was, you know, kind of who knows whether it was or not. But, uh, the premise was that it was 13th century recipes. This usually means an endeavor is over when people <laughs> effectively start going back to remixes from the past. Right. But when I, when I bought my first house, my mom came down with her dog-eared copy of joy of cooking full of, her grandmother's recipes and presented it to me as a kind of passing of the torch. Here's your joy of cooking. And this is how you make a home. It would be nice to imagine futurelings opening their 808th edition of the joy of cooking with, with a full family tree on the cover of all the Rombauers and Beckers that have produced it. It's basically our family Bible. And that concludes the joy of cooking. Entry 676.EZ2410, certificate number 38738, in the omnibus. Now, Futurelings, the internet is not only for recipes and putting cookbook uh, authors out of business. I think case law, by the way, has held that recipes are maybe not uh, patentable as a process. You can copyright the text description. So the culinary chat is protectable by law. But you can you can steal somebody else's ingredients and process. Yeah, it's they're all on three by five cards, all circulating around <laughs> the world. That's why this uh, why our correspondent insisted that we not send out his family recipe for Cincinnati chili because he knows that it would end up uh, copied and in cookbooks around the world. Do you have secret recipes in your family, by the way? My secret recipes are all um, well. You know, part of this more recent movement of making food, making kind of. F- uh, good meals out of instant packaged canned food that you get at the grocery store. Um, there are now cookbooks designed around just taking uh, lazy instant people. meals. And all of my special recipes are all based around kind of improving or u- using a canned food as a as a seed food and then improving it by adding other things. Well, that's important because you're so busy. I'm very busy. But you know, I always start my own special chili with a can of chili. And then I add beans and hamburger it, it and other vegetables. It definitely limits the downside. 
Right. Like, you know, if, if all else goes wrong, you've still got chili. Still got. If you don't do that. Some like, chili flavor in there somewhere, <laughs> right? And and my stews and whatnot. Like, I'll take Kraft macaroni and cheese and make an unrecognizably and much better version of macaroni and cheese. But it always starts with, like, a, a seed box. Well, the internet is also for other things, uh, including the scourge of social media. We are at Omnibus Project on various platforms. I'm at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John is at John Roderick on Instagram and possibly Twitter, or maybe he will have given it up again. I'm there. I'm by the there. time you hear this. Well, you sadly. were tweeting today. but yeah, sadly, gonna, I'm there. They're going to hear this in May at the earliest. Right. So I could be, I could be gone. I could be in a hospital by May. It's a little dark. Sorry. <laughs> if John is actually in a hospital by May, we will cut that out. And you never even heard it. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can send us physical uh, items. Send us, uh, send us Mima's recipes at uh, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I forgot to tell you this, but when uh, we got married, my mom gave us uh, a word-processed uh, book of old family recipes that she had compiled herself. Really, uh, and a, a lot, a lot of them come with um, assurances that they are my favorite thing. And I don't, re- I don't, you don't remember I don't any of them. I don't have memory of maybe half of them. <laughs> oh, Ken loves this. But it's true. But some of them have continued. Like every year, uh, I get a chocolate cake on my birthday that um, that I always had as a little kid because I have the palate of a four year old. Right. And my kids now love it too. It's kind of their thing. So that's. My son is now the Ethan Becker of this chocolate cake. So every Christmas morning, I expect to be served Welsh rarebit as constructed by my mother out of her Which is imagination. Just cheese toast, right? It's it's she makes it uh, out of biscuits covered with ham and cheese sauce, hmm. and that's I, more like a Benedict, right? <laughs> yeah, but no egg. Okay, and it's not uh, hollandaise; it's cheese. I don't get it any other time of the year but Christmas morning. I have never learned to make it myself. It's the it's a thing that bonds my mother and me. It 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 requires that we invite her to Christmas every year. Seasonality is very is key for food. The yeah. limited availability. Yeah, that's the McRib principle. Right, or the uh, the Shamrock Shake. Exactly. To the use Shamrock McDonald's. Shake. Yeah. Uh, we have a I did the PO box I did the email address you can uh, please confer about recipes on our futurelings group on Facebook or the discord or the reddit um, give each other your favorite family and or seasonal recipes we're all, we'll all cook them together it'll be a big communal thing especially if we still can't leave our houses mm. uh, you can support the show materially on our Patreon, on donor page at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Um, it will show you're a good-hearted person, but you're going to get something out of the deal, too. This is late-stage capitalism, and depending on the size of your donation, you might get bonus shows or other perks. You won't regret it. No, you won't. It's uh, it's an investment that pays I dividends. I don't see how you can afford not there you go. to support this show. Exactly right. Uh, Futurelings... From our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. You know, an interesting side fact about this is that Irma Rombauer's half-brother, the whole family had an interest in science, and Irma's half-brother, Max Starkloff, was the person during the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic 
who introduced the concept of social distancing. What really? Yeah. Wow. So, so Max was a, you know, Max was also a domestic scientist who, who, um, who was in a position to encourage people to social distance. So he may have saved more lives than any, uh, pineapple salad recipe. He saved him and Irma fed him. They, that family does it all. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come and that social distancing has played a role in, uh, in averting catastrophe. Although Ken and I are very confident that this is not a harbinger of, uh, the apocalypse. No. We're, we're waiting for, uh, EMPs, volcanic lahars, undersea Meteorites, right. uh, Bond villains, worse plagues, alien invasions. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.